0: Our text this morning is Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28. Here's God's word for us today. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak, and to last for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. We will pray with me. Father, again, we bow uh, with your word. And here, Lord, just honestly, we need you we need you to focus us now. You have sovereignly seen that we would be here in this place at this time in these circumstances with this text. And God, if we know you to be sovereign and mighty and good, then we know that even now we're where and when you want us to be. So we yield our hearts to you right now we ask you to, by your supernatural power, speak to us through your word, in truth, for your glory. Please, God, be gracious. Again, we we pray your blessings uh, on Karen and just that that, that situation will be um, easily taken care of. We trust you. We pray that you calm hearts of those who are nervous, and in all things. Show yourself to be great and mighty. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. On his way out of Jerusalem on Tuesday of the Passion Week, Jesus told his followers that the Jewish temple was going to be destroyed. And that would have shocked a group of men who had grown up connecting their identity as followers of God to that building. So the disciples ask Jesus for a little more data. In verse 3 of chapter 24, they, Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples come to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And last week we looked at the beginning of Jesus' answer to his followers' questions, and I suggested to you that Jesus began by sketching for the disciples a general picture of the way things are going to be for his followers' from the time of his ascension to heaven to the day of his glorious return. And that age, the age which began with the disciples, the age in which we still live, is going to be marked with several things that Jesus calls birth pains, hard happenings that remind us that his return is still yet to come. And some of the marks of this age are deceptive false teachers, false Christs, Wars between nations and natural disasters. And the age will be filled with the persecution of the followers of Jesus and the falling away of many who claim faith, but whose faith isn't genuine. And this age will be simultaneously marked with the victorious spreading of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to all nations on earth. This is not an age marked By defeat and in all of that discussion Jesus told his disciples that those markers don't signal exactly when the end will be they have to happen they are reminders that the end is yet to come but they cannot be used by anyone to determine the exact day of the return of the Lord Jesus and in truth we can look at global history and we can realize that the signs Jesus mentioned from verses 4 through 14 They've been true in various ways all throughout the history of the church. But the disciples asked Jesus a more specific question than, what's this age going to look like? They asked him to tell them when what he promised in verse 2 would take place. When would all of the stones of the temple in Jerusalem be torn apart? And I believe that Jesus is now going to zoom in for the disciples and speak to them of that horrifying period. Again, this age is marked out by many birth pains, many hardships. And maybe the strongest birth pain, definitely the strongest one the disciples would ever know of, is the unimaginable horror of the sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Jewish temple that took place around 40 years after the day Jesus said this. So we're going to continue this morning just like we did last week. We're going to look at the text of this passage, and we're going to see what it holds, both for implications for the disciples, the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, and we're also going to hear Jesus speak again of the life, of the age, of the church. He's going to show us what it's like before he comes. If you are a note taker, be ready for three points. Point number one let fulfilled prophecy strengthen your faith. Point number one let fulfilled prophecy strengthen your faith. Just look at verses 15 and maybe 16. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus here gives a really clear warning for his disciples that isn't something that is supposed to mark the entire age. He points in at one, zooms in at one particular event in their future and a right response to it. Jesus says, when something takes place, that's a clue for the people in and around Jerusalem to run for their lives. And Jesus makes reference here to the abomination of desolation written in the book of Daniel. You can find references to this abomination in Daniel 8.13, 9.27, 11.31, and 12.11. And in that prophecy of this abomination as Jesus points out, readers of Daniel are going to understand what we're talking about here. Something happens in this prophecy that will put a stop to the Jews offering burnt offerings in the temple and it will include the setting up of something sacrilegious and defiling in the holy place. Now, what year is it again? You don't really know, do you? Yeah. Oh, good. You, you think you're funny, don't you? It's As, thank you. So it's been, it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus said this. And here we are in what we call the 21st century, and a lot of us might say, man, whatever that thing is Jesus was talking about, that is really hard to imagine exactly what that might be. Right? But the first century Jew would have had no question in his mind at all as to what was meant by Daniel when Daniel talked about the abomination of desolation. See, Daniel gave a lot of prophecy from chapter 7 through 12, and a lot of it has to do with... Uh, Lots of things. Some of it has to do with the very end, right before the return of Christ, I think. But, but some of the prophecies of Daniel, a lot of Daniel, especially chapters 11 and 12, include some very specific things that happened from the time of Babylon through to the coming of the Christ. In the centuries just before the rise of the Roman Empire, there were intrigues and wars and treaties and betrayals among the nations that came out of the Greek Empire. You guys know about the Greek Empire, right? Alexander the Great, strong ruler, died really young, and his empire was divided among four of his top generals. And there was real war and conflict for the h- couple hundred years after Alexander, especially between the Ptolemies, which were the people that ruled in the south in Egypt, and the Seleucids, who ruled in the north in Syria. Northerners and Southerners like to fight, y'all. We know that, right? It's just how I I grew up right in the middle of that. It was weird. Well, sometimes the land of Judah found itself smack dab in the middle of the conflict between the Syrians and the Egyptians. Well, in the year 167 BC, so that's not that far before the time of Jesus, about 200 years before when Jesus was talking to his disciples here, A Seleucid northern king, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, he called himself, stormed into Jerusalem after a campaign in Egypt, and he did some things. Antiochus forbade the practice of the Jewish religion. He forbade the circumcision of children. He forbade the, the, the burning of offerings as the Jews would normally do he, he, he set up an image of Zeus in the holy place of the temple in Jerusalem and he caused the sacrifice of a pig on the altar now y'all know what that would be like to a Jewish person in 167 BC right to the Jew that event was the abomination of desolation in fact, if you've ever read the book of First Maccabees, how many of you have ever read anything in First Maccabees? No, a couple of you have, right? If you grew up Roman Catholic, you would have heard it. Now, we don't believe that the book of First Maccabees is holy scripture, but I'll tell you this, it was a certainly it was certainly a helpful book to let us know what the Jews understood about the history of events like this thing that Antiochus Epiphanes did. And in First Maccabees 154, This will be the only time that I can think of in my life that you'll ever hear me read from the book of 1 Maccabees from up here. I feel kind of weird, truth be told. I'm going to step off to the side, okay? (laughs) Said, now on the 15th day of Kislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah. Did you hear those words? they believed that what antiochus did was the abomination of desolation now how many of you have heard of the jewish festival of hanukkah yeah. okay 3 of you have <laughs> look you still have to participate with me no matter how the morning's all right what is hanukkah it is a festival that celebrates the rededication of the Jewish temple and the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem after the Jews took it back from the Syrians in the year 164 B.C. So y'all have to know that the Jews around Jesus knew this story very, very well. And they knew what they thought the abomination of desolation was, what Daniel had predicted. So what's happening here, though, is Jesus tells his followers that they're going to see it again. Something like the abomination of desolation that happened in 167 BC is coming again. Something else is gonna happen and it's gonna make anyone who read Daniel and knew Daniel who knew about the abomination of desolation, they're gonna make, because I mean, this reminds me of what Daniel said. This reminds me of what happened 200 years ago. And the people in Jerusalem, when they see this thing happen, whatever it is, when they see the abomination of desolation being repeated in some form, that is the time clue that the destruction of the temple is at hand and they need to run. So what was Jesus pointing to that would come in the future? Scholars debate this. What is the recapitulation of the abomination of desolation? Sounds like a bumper sticker. Uh, When the Roman army came into Jerusalem, captured the temple, and set it ablaze in AD 70, that was far too late for the people in Jerusalem to flee the city. In fact, many of the people in Jerusalem who tried to flee after the temple had fallen were captured and crucified all around the city. So I think it's very unlikely that the burning of the temple was the sign that it was time to run. But I don't think Jesus was referring to the Romans taking the temple simply as the only thing of, that would make somebody think of the abomination of desolation. Instead, The period of revolt, the Jewish wars from AD 66 to AD 70, all of that period is marked by things that would have reminded you of the abomination of desolation. In AD 66, a a Roman named Cestius led an attack on the temple. And that attack should have warned the watchful that desolation was coming. Now the Jews repelled that attack, but it was obvious at that point that the wrath of Rome was coming. Or the people who lived in Jerusalem who who knew about the temple at all, they knew that between the years 66 and 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was desecrated by the evil and the bloodshed of the Jews, of the zealots who were fighting each other for control of the temple, even in the temple itself. I want to give you a little weird history here from Josephus. Um, How many of you have ever read Josephus before? Right? A couple of you have. How many of you regret it? Yeah. It's not fun reading. But listen to the way Josephus talks about what was happening in the temple, in the temple grounds between AD 66 and 70. He says, there were continued sallies made one against another as well as darts thrown at one another, and the temple was defiled everywhere with murders. For those darts that were thrown by the engines came with that force that they went all over the buildings and reached as far as the altar and the temple itself and fell upon the priests and those who were about the sacred offices insomuch that any many persons that came thither with great zeal from the ends of the earth to offer sacrifices at this celebrated place, which was esteemed holy by all mankind, many of these people, fell down before their own sacrifices themselves and sprinkled that altar which was venerable among all men, both Greeks and barbarians, with their own blood, till the dead bodies of the strangers were mingled together with those of their own country and those of profane persons with those of the priests, and the blood of all sorts of dead carcasses stood in lakes in the holy courts themselves. You ever heard that history before? Anyone who was aware that that kind of bloody revolt, violence and murder was happening in the temple court so that the very altars were being sprinkled with the blood of people who were there, they would have had to understand that they were seeing an abomination of desolation being repeated. Even if it wasn't completely finishing at that point, they had to know, oh baby, this is bad. And the abomination that they saw would indeed culminate with the Roman general Titus taking the city and dismantling the temple just as Jesus predicted in verse 2. But long before Titus ringed the city, long before Titus marched into the city, a thoughtful follower of Jesus who heard what he said, who heard about the bloodshed in the temple would have known, I better run away now. Because Jesus told them, don't wait to flee. Once you see this happening, once you see desolation in the temple, run. Look at verses 16 again through 20. It says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who lives, who's in the field, not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight not be in winter or in the Sabbath. Does that sound like a pretty urgent call to you? Run for the hills. Don't stop. If you are resting on your rooftop in the cool of the day, as Jews were apt to do at that time, and all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, this is what's happening. Don't even go back in the house. Just run. Maybe even jump from rooftop to rooftop until you're out of the city. And if you're in a field and you realize that's what's happening, don't even traverse the field to go get your cloak. Just run. Now, I'm not sure that Jesus might not be being a little hyperbolic here. Um, If I'm right, that the abomination and the signs of the abomination actually would have been clear for a little while, I think the point simply is don't delay. Don't think to yourself, ooh, this looks bad. I'll run sometime soon. Man, I'm probably gonna have to get out of here one of these days. Don't think, you know, I gotta sell my house. I gotta get everything in order. I've gotta make sure this is where it's supposed to be. No, no, no. When you realize what's going on, get up and get out right now. And I think, friends, that the point Jesus is primarily making to his disciples is to warn the Jewish listener, don't do the most natural thing that the Jew would expect to do. Don't run to Jerusalem thinking it will be a safe place. Don't think the city walls will protect you from the destruction to come. If you see the temple defiled by bloodshed, if you know Roman armies are on the march, you cannot be safe in Jerusalem. Run for your lives. That's what Jesus told his disciples. He told them, pray that you don't have to run in the wintertime. Pray that you don't try to get out of the city on the Sabbath because that that would hinder your departure. He expressed sadness for pregnant women, for nursing mothers, because from what I understand, pregnant women don't move as fast as other women do. I don't know. I could probably take a survey and find out if that's true or not. But um, if you're caring for little ones, that slows you down. If you're trying to run and Jesus says, no, you got to go fast. It's dangerous to be in the city. When you see the danger, get out. Now why run so far so fast? Verse 21 says, For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Something's going to be bad. Now, we've already said that this entire age is an age of tribulation, as well as an age of victory. There will be a great tribulation that occurs and it will be in perspective the single worst event in human history. And D.A. Carson believes that Jesus is calling the destruction of Jerusalem and the surrounding events the greatest tribulation of the age. Carson writes, there have been greater numbers of deaths, six million in the Nazi death camps, mostly Jews, and an estimated 20 million under Stalin, but never so high a percentage of one great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. Now, I'll be honest with you guys, just, just, just me and you here, don't tell the others, um, this is probably the spot I struggle most with uh, agreeing with Carson here i I, I wrestle with whether verse twenty one should be tied to eighty seventy or if maybe that should be taken as a statement either over the entire age, which I don't think as likely or perhaps even something that comes at the very end of the age uh I'm just not absolutely sure how to deal with it, so I'm not gonna tell you exactly how to deal with it. That's up to you to work on. But either way, Jesus did answer the disciples' question about the fall of the temple. He told them it's coming. He said it's going to follow an abominable desecration, an abomination of desolation of the temple. And when you see that, when you understand what's happening, run, because the desecration of the temple is gonna mark the beginning of a season of horrible tribulation. And here we are. Again, how long are we removed from that? About 2,000 years from when Jesus said that? What in the world do we do with that? Because how many of you are worried about the fall of Jerusalem right now? Are any of you concerned about the temple? Not so much, right? We don't live in Jerusalem. There's no standing temple. The Roman Empire is not threatening us right now. What do we do? Let's try this. Let fulfilled prophecy strengthen your faith. Jesus told the people what was going to happen. And it was unimaginable to the Jews. But within 40 years of him saying it, the very thing Jesus predicted took place. The temple was destroyed. You realize that, that it really was taken apart stone by stone? When fire caught in the temple, you guys remember what was, what was coating the walls of the temple? What was on the walls? Gold. What happens when, when fire gets to gold? It melts. Well, so the, the, the gold was melting into the cracks. So guess what, they, guess what the Romans did to get the gold? Let's unstack every single stinking stone. And they absolutely took the, the temple completely to its foundation. Jesus predicted it perfectly. Y'all know, by the way, that Scripture has an uncanny amount of fulfilled prophecy in it, right? God has told us from the very beginning of the Bible of events that would be tens, hundreds, thousands of years in the future, and he got it right. God told us about the coming of the Savior. He told us about Jesus' virgin birth. He told us exactly where Jesus would be born. He promised how Jesus would come into the city on the foal. And he said so much more about the Savior. Prophecies talked about the Savior's death, his burial, his resurrection. There were prophecies about Jesus' death that talked about his pierced hands and feet. And think about that. The prophecy about Jesus having pierced hands and feet was written before anybody came up with crucifixion. And Jesus, 40 years ahead of time, told them exactly what the fall of Jerusalem was gonna look like. And what we need to do is let that kind of fulfilled prophecy serve us as proof of the identity of Jesus. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is the Lord of all. Jesus knows what is to come. Jesus promised things, perfectly fulfilled them, and kept completely in line with God's word. That is a beautiful testimony to who Jesus is. So what do you do with Jesus' fulfilled prophecies? I mean, if you're a skeptic, what do you do with this stuff? You cannot, with intellectual integrity, ignore the fact that God made promises about Jesus that God then brought to pass later. You cannot ignore the fact that Jesus foretold his death, his resurrection. You've got to see that those fulfilled words of prophecy speak to the truth of who Jesus claims to be. The fulfilled prophecy has to make you consider Jesus. So if you're doubting, let fulfilled prophecy make you trust in Jesus. And Christian, let fulfilled prophecies strengthen your faith in Jesus. You know, Jesus has never once been surprised. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus knew his future, Jesus knew your future. God's plans always come to pass. God has never failed. You believe that, by the way? Has God ever tried something and failed? Not the God of the Bible. He's never failed. He will never fail. So let even Jesus' prediction of the horrors that befell Jerusalem, let that remind you of God's greatness, of Christ's greatness. Okay, so what what about eschatology then? Right? Isn't that what we do in Matthew 24? We study eschatology? Does this section of Matthew 24 have anything to say about the very end? about an outbreak of evil before the return of Jesus. Maybe. Maybe it does. But I think that really if you want to study the Bible and know what the Bible says about things that could be closer to the end, tribulation, antichrists, and things like that that people talk about so much, I think there are other texts in Scripture that you need to look to more than this passage for that. 2 Thessalonians, the book of Revelation, First John, great places to look to talk about this stuff. Those are better places to look to see what may come just before the return of Jesus than Matthew 24 is. Because I think Jesus is primarily here speaking to his disciples about events that are gonna come to pass within 40 years. Okay, well then what are we supposed to do? What do we do in times of great pain? What do we do in great times of fear, whether it's AD 70 coming, or whether it's other great times of persecution and tribulation and hardship that the church has faced through the ages? How do we respond? And that's gonna be our second point. Truthfully, how many of you are wondering if we were ever gonna get to a second point? Trust the Lord to preserve his elect. Trust the Lord to preserve his elect. Verse 22 reads, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So Jesus now tells us that the Lord by his sovereign power will shorten the days of tribulation. Why? Because if God didn't shorten those days, everybody would die. But for the sake of the elect, the chosen, the church, the, 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 the days of tribulation are going to be shortened. Now, here's a major interpretive question. What does Jesus mean by the phrase those days? Is he talking about 80-70 and the Jewish wars and the siege of Jerusalem? We know that he was doing that from 15 to 20, maybe 21. Or is Jesus now shifting back, zooming out and talking about the entire age of the church the way that he did from verse 4 through 14? And I will tell you that good scholars are divided here. So you've got to wrestle through this on your own a little bit. But I agree with D.A. Carson here, I agree with Leon Morris here, a couple of others that I've read, that verse 22 is about the entire age of the church, that we've now zoomed back out to cover the entire, age those, the entire age of those birth pains. And here the Savior lets the church know if God doesn't take a hand at bringing the age to an end, if God doesn't get involved here, humanity would destroy itself. By the way, would it, would it surprise you to see humanity, if left alone, destroy itself? We're, we're good at that. We mess stuff up, up all the time. Now, it is feasible that the words of Jesus in verse 22 are saying that the time of the Roman siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 is cut short in order to save the elect of God in Jerusalem. That is a feasible interpretation, so please don't make fun of anybody who, who, who goes that way, okay? But I am not convinced that the wording fits that that's about 70 AD. Because the phrase, the elect, it's used three times in this section, it's used in verse 22, 24, and 31. And all of the rest of those, it, it, it seems most natural to take it as all Christians and not just Christians in Jerusalem. The phrase no human being would be saved, literally it says no flesh would be saved in verse 22. That seems unlikely to refer only to the people inside the city in AD 70. But again, we don't have to wrestle that down right now in order for us to have something to learn and grow from. Because one thing is for sure God preserves his elect. We might suffer, we might go through hardships, we might go through pains. Many of us could die for our faith. But the Lord God never loses the ones he has chosen. Christians, no matter how dark or how victorious, This age looks. We must become a people whose hope is found fully in the preserving power and saving grace of our God. We've got to find our hope not in worldly security, not in possessions, not in safety, not in physical life. Your hope has to be in the fact that if you're a believer, you're chosen by God, given to the Son, guaranteed resurrection. That's where your hope is. And if we trust in the preserving power of the Lord, if we trust in his love for his elect, one other thing we'll do is we'll guard against false Christs and false teachers. So third point, guard against false teaching. Guard against false teaching. Verses 23 to 25. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as uh, to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Throughout the age of the church, there are going to be men who rise to prominence based on false claims. Have you seen that happen before? Some people will claim to have secret knowledge about Jesus that everybody else didn't have. Some of them will claim to actually be Jesus reborn. Some will perform signs and they're gonna mislead many people, even the elect, if that was possible. I mean, they would love to make the church shatter. And Jesus warns his followers don't let yourself be caught up in any sort of mystical mumbo jumbo offered to you about men who claim to know the secret of where Jesus is or that he somehow came back in secret. Jesus says, don't buy it if anybody claims to be Jesus. Don't buy it if a person tells you, hey, I can show you Jesus in a way that's not commonly available to normal Christians. And note that these men, through the age, may even do miracles. Stop. Listen to me. I'm not saying that they will pretend to do miracles. That's not what the text says. Do you see that? Some may actually demonstrate a little bit of supernatural power. They will perform great signs. And their goal will be to mislead By the way, that's very similar to something Moses warned the Israelites about just before Moses died. In Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, this is one of the scariest passages of Scripture I ever read when I first saw what it meant. Deuteronomy 13 says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass... And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Does that not give you shivers? Moses said, hey, you know what? Someone might come with a prophecy. They might come with a miracle. It might even come true. But if they tell you to walk away from my word, don't follow. God did use the miraculous in a way to, to testify to the authenticity of the apostles during the first century. But God has always warned his people and please pay attention to me here God has always warned his people not to be overly fascinated by signs and wonders miracles do not prove that a person's on God's side how then do we know if somebody's on God's side listen carefully one solid test scripture The word of God is sure and steady. The word of God rightly handled and applied is more sure and more steady than any experience you could ever have. Please don't let yourself believe that if you saw it with your own two eyes or felt it deep down in your little heart, that that somehow means that what you saw or felt is true if it contradicts the word of God Nothing you can see, nothing you can feel, nothing you can go through is as real and as sure as is the word of God. And the word of God points you to Jesus alone. Then verses 26 to 28 read, So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Jesus says, guys, don't follow anybody who claims to have secret knowledge of how to find him you guys know how tempting that is by the way if you run across somebody that just feels like they're spiritual and they're like you think "Ooh, they know a path to jesus that's it's just more exciting than the one i'm on the the read the bible pray try to be a faithful christian path it's out there isn't it whether it's the charismatic gifts whether it's the get rich quick scheme or whether it's the people all into the mysticism Jesus, listen, when he comes back to this earth, he's not going to do it in a hidden way. He's not going to build a secret following in the desert that only the elite go find. Jesus is not going to be hidden in somebody's inner sanctum so that you have to go through their weird temple process to get to know him. No, when Jesus comes again, it's going to be once, it's going to be final, it's going to be undeniable, it's going to be something the whole world's going to be able to see as a flash of lightning lights up the whole sky. The actual return of Jesus is going to be visible to the entire world. Now, while you're in the mood for amening, let me just tell you, verse 28 is just plain weird. Amen? What's that vulture verse about? You read the commentaries and you're going to find out that scholars seem to have lost the thread of what in the world's going on here. We know vultures circle. Why does Jesus use it here as he talks about the visibility of his return? I mean, seeing vultures definitely tell you there's a dead thing on the ground. I, saw, I learned that in The Lion King. But... What's it about? Maybe, maybe seeing this kind of evil, maybe seeing these false prophets circling and swooping on the rottenness of the world, maybe that helps us know that the judgment of God is about to fall, maybe? That's a good, as good a guess as I've got. And you can read the commentaries and they don't have any better ones. But in the end, this section, which wraps up the sketch of the age of the church, notice that Jesus is bookending his warnings what we see in verses 23 to 28 is the very same warning we saw in verses 4 and 5 in this age evil men will come to deceive us with false preaching with a with a fascination in the supernatural and with claims to have secret knowledge that is not contained in scripture that is the sign of a false prophet by the way false teaching a reliant, an over-reliance on the supernatural and, and again, claims to know a way to Jesus that are not found in Scripture. That's dangerous stuff, folks. Guard against all of that by remembering that the Word of God is your only sure, stable revelation of God. Remember, all Christians have the same access to God. That is the doctrine known as the priesthood of all believers, that is a reformation st- a strong point. We don't go through somebody else who can mediate our position before God. We have one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus who intercedes on our behalf. But you don't have to come to me to go to God. Aren't you glad about that? I'm happy to pray for you, but don't think my prayers are more special than yours. Right? Right? Even when I'm wearing a tie, my prayers aren't more effective than yours. We all have the same access to God and we need to remember that the return of Jesus, which is coming, if you want to get close to Jesus, here's how you're going to get really close to Jesus. When Jesus comes back, his return is going to be visible. It's going to be worldwide. It's going to be universally seen and that's going to draw you right to him. Jesus perfectly predicted the fall of Jerusalem and he offered his followers comfort in his final, the final ultimate preserving protection of God, God keeps his elect. And Jesus warned us, don't fall. prey to false claims of false teachers, even if they dabble in the, mir- in the miraculous. Don't go there. Christians, let this strengthen your faith. Let it comfort your soul. Let it, let it remind you that God keeps you. Let it call you to the word of God so that you don't fall for dangerous false teachers Let it make you even more committed to the local church as we live together in the word of God, in fellowship together, waiting for the return of Jesus, being victorious in spreading the gospel. Let it draw you to the church and not off to some weird other thing that's some sort of extra way to find Jesus. It's not out there. And listen, if you don't yet know Jesus, if you're fighting with Jesus, I want to add one word. The fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 is a reminder that though God is very patient, y'all would agree God's patient, right? God's patience does end. those who refuse God's mercy and reject God's ways will face God's wrath. That's what fell on Jerusalem in 8070. I urge you turn from sin, stop thinking you get to be the master of your life, and run to Jesus for mercy before the judgment of God falls on you. Christians, would you say that's things that your lost friends need? Amen. Let's pray. Father, just a weird day God there's a weird weight on us today and here we are in a weird passage that itself has a weird weight but God you said you chose that this is what we needed from you today And my prayer, Lord, is that you will use this text to remind us of who you are, what are your ways, what are your promises. God, the fact is, even here in this room, uh, those of us who are dear friends may handle this differently, think about this differently, expect different things. And that's okay. But I would pray that the universal principles, that those things would stick to us, that we would honor Jesus, that we would thank you for your saving, electing, keeping power, and that we would guard against evil, false teaching, and foolish temptations, especially of the fantastic. And God, again, we just lift up our church, our friends, our hearts this day. Be glorified in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.